Hey everybody, it's Phil. Thanks for downloading another episode of SpecsCast. The past couple weeks have been extremely busy for the crew with projects and schoolwork that put us on an unexpected hiatus. If you're a subscriber to the show, thanks for sticking with us. And to those who wrote in via email, we appreciate the support. We are actively seeking audio editors to help us focus on content creation and bring you more interviews, discussions, and news about space exploration. To see what we've been up to in the past couple weeks, visit a Specs exhibit or watch SpecsCast recorded live at Imagine RIT at the Rochester Institute of Technology on May 6th. But now, let's listen in on a conversation we had on April 9th about rocket reusability. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is TJ, and I'll be your host today alongside our good friends Phil. Hey! Back from an exciting stay in Wallace, Virginia, and joining us from the beautiful state of Utah, Augie. Hello. We are a group of students belonging to the student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, aka SPECS, at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and SpecsCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today, we'll be talking about SpaceX's SCS-10 mission and the first successful reuse of an orbital liquid rocket booster. Please let us know what topics you would like to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Feedback is awesome and helps us make a better show for all of you. So, over a year ago, SpecsCast launched with its first episode on rocket reusability, coming off the heels of the first ever successful landing of an orbital liquid booster stage. We discussed the possibilities that reusing these vehicles could bring to the industry at large. Now, SpaceX has successfully relaunched a landed booster, validating the vertical launch and landing paradigm, and taking the next step towards rapid reuse of space hardware. Finally. Exactly. We're waiting for this day for so long. It's fine. So, yeah. um, let's recap what actually happened uh, during the SES-10 mission. So, for a long time now, uh, SpaceX has been working on testing, refurbishing the recovered boosters that they've been landing on the autonomous spaceport drone ship out in the ocean and back at the launch site um, for the CRS missions. So, on the 30th of March, they finally demonstrated the flight capability of a reused rocket booster. So, this one has already flown once. Some, play, some parts have been replaced, um, but the whole structure is this. It's the same rocket, essentially. It took an SES satellite into orbit and then uh, turned around and came back and landed on the drone ship again. So, they demonstrated their full launch profiles, just like a regular brand new booster, except this one has flown already. So this is the very first time they've proven the entire Falcon 9 architecture that they've been preaching for so long of uh, launch, land, repeat, and oh, man, it's just so cool. With SES-10, uh, we all watched it either live or recorded. It's very, very exciting. Um, but the main highlight besides the accomplishment of relaunching uh, and relanding a used booster uh, was the press conference that happened afterwards. Uh, Elon was actually gave a live interview dr- directly after the booster had landed, uh, and then he had a, an hour-long press conference. Now, we have audio from that press conference, uh, courtesy of Brendan Byrne, uh, 
a reporter at the Space Coast who graciously uh, sent us this audio. So we'll be actually be putting that in throughout this of his uh, answers to some of the questions he was asked. Brandon Byrne is a reporter at WMFE Orlando, which is an NPR member station. He also has a podcast called Are We There Yet?, which is another space podcast. We're good friends with him. But we'll also be talking about the implications that came out of this news because this is probably the first big uh, news dump by SpaceX in 2017, outline what's going to come in the rest of 2017 and also in the years ahead. So the uh, first uh, big news item is about, about Falcon 9 Block 5. This will be the supposedly final evolution of the Falcon architecture. So because they were able to land a bunch of boosters, tear them apart, see what breaks, what doesn't break, they're taking a bunch of these improvements over time and having a somewhat final version that they think will be able to survive 10 up to 100 reuses with minimal refurbishment. We expect the boosters to, with no refurbishment, be capable of 10 flights, and with moderate refurbishment, be capable of 100 flights. Now, why this is important is that the SES-10 booster actually flew on CRS-8 uh, almost a year ago in April, and that landed... And Elon mentions that they spent four months taking the booster completely apart, replacing pretty much every component besides the engines and the airframe, anything that could have been damaged or had some wear on it. They took out just to be safe, analyzed it for the future, uh, and put new stuff in there. So while the important things, the engines and the tanks, got reused, uh, a lot of the smaller bits weren't. And so, you know... Those are the most, the largest, most expensive parts of the component, but there's still a four, four months of manpower and new parts that had to be put in to make this flight ready. The idea is that it is that a Block 5 booster in a few years could land back at Cape Canaveral and within 24 hours be ready to launch again. So that's from a year between launches with four months of refurbishment down to no refurbishment at all. Nothing gets touched or changed out of the booster and then it launches in just a day. So this brings about two questions in my mind. One is the, what is it called, Archimedes ship uh, thought experiment. If you take a ship and you go bring it back to port and you replace one plank that is damaged and you send it back out. Eventually, if you bring it back and replace stuff every time uh, you've replaced every plank in the whole ship, is it the same ship? I don't know if it matters all that much, but when we're talking about rocket reusability, and refurbishment, taking it apart, replacing stuff that's broken, do you think that it'll be like actually the same exact Falcon 9 that flies out again in 24 hours? For the first 10 flights, I think it will be. Yeah, for 24 hours, I think the plan is only to land it right near the launch pad, inspect it, and then launch again without replacing anything. I imagine it probably takes longer than 24 hours to replace but, but is the idea is the idea more of like generally launch a Falcon 9 every 24 hours? Like you have some reserves and while one is being serviced, you launch the next one 24 hours later? That's that's the question I'm wondering. If SpaceX focuses so much on this 24-hour turnaround time goal, is that going to hurt their overall throughput over the course of a year? Are they going to spend too long being able to just refly immediately when if they had pushed it back to you know weekly turnarounds, then they would launch 52 rockets in a year and that'd be more than they've ever launched? Just about increasing launch rates. There's been a uh, SpaceX's one of SpaceX's goals besides reuse is increasing the launch rate from the launch pads they have. So right now they have one operational pad in Florida, 
by the end of the year, SLC 40 will be back up. They'll have two. That means that they can have dual, uh, basically assembly lines to get boosters ready. So that theoretically takes their waiting time down by half. Uh, also, as we saw on the last flight, they introduced the autonomous flight safety system, which means that the range assets, the radars and the tracking stations, uh, don't have to be uh, utilized as heavily. So that dramatically reduces the number of people, which is an expense, but also allows them to turn around much quicker because they don't have to tune literally half a century year old radars and tracking systems to suit a new rocket, a new pad. So you see all these little things that space is trying to do to, you know, shave a few hours off of what's a multi-day or multi-week process. Uh, it's just, you know, because everything that takes, is, anything that re results in less time taken to do a launch is reduced cost onto the, the customer, right? And so we've seen, you know, with the static fire, with payload on top, with Amos 6, that was an attempt to do an important test but also save some time where you don't have to bring it back, mate the payload, and then launch. Unfortunately, that had some unintended consequences. So I do think that because it's it's been a goal of SpaceX for so long, they probably have different groups of people working on those things. I don't think emphasizing one aspect over another is going to be such a detriment to the other. One thing about flight rate that Block 5 kind of um, reminds me of is if Block 5 is meant to be the final iteration of Falcon 9, the kind of culmination of all this development that's gone into it, and every flight they tweak something, change something, improve something with every new Falcon they build. If Block 5 is that end point, you know, it's it's that one that they're just going to say, okay, we're done, now let's produce as, you know, as many as we can and launch them as fast as we can, does that turn around being like 24 hours where you don't service it, where you don't upgrade it, does that take out the, um, I don't know, robustness that comes with custom building every Falcon? If it's just, you know, every one off the assembly line is the same, how much improvement per new vehicle is there going to be? Um, because the more updates, the more development you put in, the more tweaks, the more fixes, that kind of stretches out that build time, right? Yeah, I think they should just nail down the full thrust Falcon 9 and then focus on the ITS. I think that probably they won't try and manufacture a ton of them. They'll try and manufacture a, sh a few that they just keep in production. And then they just have the capability to manufacture more as some may fail to land or they may realize that they don't last 10 flights. Maybe they only last nine. Maybe they don't last 100 flights with some refurbishment. Maybe they last 80. I think that probably it will make, I don't know. I mean, I think Phil's question is a good one, but I'm not sure what the, what the correct They're going to have to keep is. building more to keep up with their, to even burn through their backlog, even if even with reuse. Um, no. They have so many flights. Uh I don't know if that's true. Think how many pads they have because so so yes, they have a backlog, but if they had say 24 hour turnaround or say just like a week, if they could turn around a rocket that landed in a week and refly it, then all they would need basically is 14 rockets to keep two pads operating every single day. Total 14 rockets. Right. What was the turnaround time on on this past launch? So, not the same rocket, but between recent launches? Between rockets? Yeah. Those 14 days. So the, they're creeping in on that goal in terms of launching a vehicle. Right. And they only and, and they only have two pads 
potentially more than that in the future, but right now it wouldn't take that many rockets to, as long as they can minimize that turnaround time, to just continually operate. Yeah, it is interesting because once you get to that airliner uh, business model where it does a, a mission and it comes back and it's basically ready to be reused again, then like, again, if you have 14 rockets, you can launch 365 days a year. Uh, that is more launches than most decades. Actually, yeah, two rockets every day for a whole 365 days of the year. Yeah, exactly. You have 14 rockets and two pads, um, which that would clear off their backlog quickly. So I think the the more important issue is that looking at this year, Elon talked about how they have estimates about six reused booster launches uh, this year. Excluding the Falcon Heavy flight, which is just basically on SpaceX's dime that nobody's paying us for that because it's a demonstration flight. That's two of the reused uh, boosters. There are, I think, three or four others that have signed up on, on a contingency basis. Like, if this one works, then sure. SpaceX is trying to do 20 flights this year. So the majority of the customers have paid for and want new boosters, right? And Elon talked about how there's a price uh, decrease, but it's not, you know, it's not a factor of 10 decrease or a factor of 100 decrease. It's 20% off already the lowest price in the business. So it puts SpaceX in a good spot. What I see is that while SpaceX is making very rapid progress in the availability and reducing the cost of space launches, the space payload market hasn't caught up yet, right? We're still doing the, the long life uh, communication satellites that have multi-year development cycles that expect to be built and have multiple years to until they fly. But what we, what we see with all of these communication satellite uh, constellations coming sometime in the future, that's when you could launch a rocket every day, right? If you have to put up 4,000 or 8,000 satellites and you have five or six of these networks, which is the most ridiculous case, at that point, you can support those insanely high launch rates, um, which I think is the ideal goal to shoot for. But again, even if they hit a seven-day turnaround, that is four, that's four months of manual labor reuse they don't have to pay for, which is another reduction in cost. Uh, so there's still benefits to just you know trying to go faster, trying to be more efficient, uh, even if it's not a rocket every day. Going to the kind of the technical improvements of uh, Block 5, uh, for those who actually watched the live stream of SES-10, as the booster was coming in, uh, you could have noticed that the grid fins were actually heating up, uh, and for us, it actually looked like they were on fire. Uh, so someone asked Elon that question of... Uh, if, you, if you saw on the, on the webcast, you may have noticed that the grid fins were lighting on fire. So we, we, have, <laughs> we actually have a new design for the grid fin, which is... Um, Quite a bit more advanced than the current one, um, and it's—I think—I believe it will be the largest titanium forging in the world. It's a special alloy of titanium that's very good at high heat flux, whereas this grid fin is um, made of aluminum, but it's covered in uh, thermal protection. But but it gets so, it's so hot that the thing lights on fire a little bit, um, which is not great for reuse. Um, but the the new grid fins will be should be capable of of taking a scorching and. And being fine. If you're going to be reusing something 10 times or 100 times, you can put that upfront cost of you know, more expensive materials, more expensive manufacturing to make something that's more durable. Especially for something like grid fins, which are really only useful for landing. So not only would, would probably nobody else ever done something like this because it's a more expensive material, it's a more expensive manufacturing process, but it's actually something that directly impacts their reuse. 
And uh, Elon actually mentioned that uh, if they can get the Falcon 9 stage at the right angle, yeah, they can use they can use the rocket itself as a lifting body. And they'll also ha have significantly more control authority. That should improve the reusability of the, the rocket. Uh, well, actually improve the payload to orbit um, by being able to fly at a, at a higher angle of attack um, and use the aerodynamic element of the rocket to effectively glide like a big cylinder. Um, but you need a control authority, particularly pitch control authority, that's higher than we currently have to achieve that. And so not only are these going to be made of titanium so that they're heat resistant, they're going to be uh, larger to provide more control authority. Uh, so Block 5 could actually look a lot different um, than the current rocket we see. Yeah, and rolled in, um, like that's added mass, that's, you know, uh, some of the, like the between the material and the size, that's more mass that they'd be launching every time. But um, as we've seen in the past with engine improvements, I think as a package, it'll, it'll all even out in the end. Yeah, and so, you know, we're expecting Block 5 uh, at the end of this year. Um, what does that mean for SpaceX's competitors? We have uh, currently the version 1.2 being launched and being reused. Um, currently, they have planned to be used one or two more times. Um, so not that 10 times without any refurbishment. Uh, what happens when that Block 5 hits the market and starts flying? Well, if they actually let it hit the market and don't develop a Block 6. <laughs> True. Or, or you know, the Falcon 27 or the Block 2.5. That's the, oh, right. Block 2.5. They called it, he, Elon called it version 2.5, which if you try and compare the, the versions of the Falcon 9 that SpaceX has used before versus the blocks, which they have also used before, it's almost impossibly confusing. Like Elon said in the press conference that this current Block 5 version that they were working on was going to be called V. 2.5, which is somewhat absurd if you look at the other V1.2s and V1.1s that they've called their rockets. Yeah, SpaceX naming is uh, a pinnacle of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think, though, that um, they will have, hopefully this is true, but I think that they will really focus on like the throughput of their launches with Block 5 and then invest all of that new R&D research and development onto um, ITS. I just hope that Falcon Heavy doesn't distract them. Now, what's interesting about R&D is that Elon actually put a price tag on the cost of developing reuse for the first time. And, and nobody was paying us for reusability. So this is, it had to be on our own dime. I think we've, it, it's probably at least a billion dollars that we spent developing this. So it'll take us a while to pay that off. Uh, saying there was a, a billion dollars uh, on top of developing Falcon to develop the landing legs and the fins and being able to re reuse. And then we need to get really efficient with the reuse of the booster and with the fairing. Um, I would expect the economics to start becoming <laughs> sensible um, next year. That's a pretty quick turnaround time for a billion dollars, though, if you think about it. Like, that's really quick. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because, again, what reuse rockets mean is that it's going to be a lower cost to the end consumer uh, but even then, SpaceX will be able to charge enough and make enough profit to pay back those costs. What's also interesting is that the one of the primary reasons for not developing reuse uh, by SpaceX competitors has been that like large upfront cost, right? Where you have to guarantee the rocket can be used X number of times for reuse to pay out per vehicle, and also those development costs. You know, unless someone else like the government pays for them, uh, can really raise that price. Uh, and so it looks like SpaceX is able to, you know, just out of volume, 
and spreading those development launches over paying missions uh, still remain profitable, which is really interesting. Well, I think it's crazy just how I'm still focused on that one year they're going to recover a billion dollars. That's that's if you if you just project that out, that means they're going to be making at least a billion dollars of extra revenue for every year after that, which they can invest in developing the ITS and colonizing Mars. And I believe Elon predicted that it would take, you know, roughly the order of up to $10 billion to build the whole ITS system in order to colonize Mars. And um, we're actually talking about that kind of scale of a number right now without even looking at what kind of money they're going to make out of the the satellites they've been working on and that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that Falcon Heavy. We also got some uh, very intriguing Falcon Heavy news. Uh, First, for people who don't know, Falcon Heavy is a three-core version of the Falcon architecture where there are two uh, Falcon 9 first stages on the sides uh, and then a center core that's also a Falcon uh, 9 but slightly modified uh, with the the standard second stage and fairing on top. And this was originally supposed to fly years and years ago. Uh, I think 2013 was a probable date. I was supposed to fly out of California at Vandenberg, but then now they have 39A. It's waiting for 39A and SLC 40 to be back up. It was interesting why they're, why Elon said they were waiting for 39A, and it was basically because they didn't want to lose their other pad in case because a Falcon Heavy is such a high risk mission. And Falcon Heavy, I really want to emphasize, is a high risk. Uh, that's a high risk flight. Um, Twenty-seven engines are lighting simultaneously. So it's a lot of engines. I mean, technically, it should be called the Falcon 27. If we thought that, maybe that would sound too scary, so we call it the Falcon Heavy. So certainly, we wouldn't, wouldn't want to take the risk of you know something going wrong with that pad and and then having no pad um, on these coasts. So uh, got to get 40 up and running. Uh, confirm that's good, and then um, then we can launch heavy from uh, 39A. Yeah, and so uh, with Falcon Heavy, uh, we now have a timeline of end of summer. Um, I think Elon pointed towards to September, but other reports, uh, if SLC 40 has to be operational for Falcon Heavy to fly. We've heard reports that SLC 40 is not going to be ready until um, November at the earliest. Uh, But hopefully later this year, we'll actually see this rocket fly. Now, something that was interesting is that Elon mentioned that it turns out that just strapping three booster cores together was a lot harder than he originally anticipated, uh, which I think is really interesting because the idea of putting boosters on rockets has been pretty common throughout history. The, obviously, the very first rockets uh, didn't have boosters, but even in the, ni- the late 1950s, 1960s, we saw like solid rocket boosters, even liquid boosters with uh, Soyuz. What I think is baffling is that they that I think Elon mentioned that in the Falcon Heavy, they would be reusing some of the rockets from the Falcon 9. So they're somehow able to actually interchange those boosters, despite the fact that they're apparently so different. Yeah, that's that's really interesting too. Is that you know the two side boosters are going to be landed and reused boosters, um, when you would assume that on a demo flight for a brand new rocket they would want brand new everything. Well, um, they're saving a lot of cost by doing that. Exactly, and you know the the Falcon Heavy advertised cost is roughly ninety million dollars, um, but that's most likely factoring into reuse and recovering all of the stages that get launched. Yeah, you know, I bet they kind of anticipated this. Like they want that's probably one of the design constraints. I'm sure it's one of the design constraints they went into in developing Falcon Heavy is that they would be want want to use uh, boosters that were already 
landed Falcon 9s because then they'd have so much more supply of them. Um, and so I think probably um, the, the design of it maybe could have happened a lot faster had they not done that. And also they're planning on re-landing it, which I think is pretty crazy too. And, and they'll want to demonstrate to their customers, and that's the whole point of the demo, right? They want to demonstrate to their customers that they can use reused Falcon 9 boosters on the Falcon Heavy. Because if I was a customer and I saw SpaceX launch a brand new Falcon Heavy with all new boosters and then say to me, oh, we're going to launch your satellite with reused Falcon 9 boosters, I'd be a little nervous. Yeah, I think that's really interesting insight of, you know, getting com- customers co- comfortable with reuse. It's, uh, it's basically two demos at once. Otherwise, they need to do another one. Well, you know? actually. Otherwise, they need to prove that they can actually integrate a used Falcon 9 on a Falcon Heavy. Well, actually, it might be three demos at once. Uh, high off, high off of the uh, successful uh, launch and relanding of SES-10, Elon uh, suggested that it might be possible to recover the second stage on Falcon Heavy. Um, and then the only thing left is the upper stage, which we didn't originally intend for Falcon 9 to have a reusable upper stage, but it might be fun to try, try like a Hail Mary and, you know. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? It, it blows up. You know, it blows up anyway. Um, we need to discuss this. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, the goal of SpaceX's like whole reuse mantra is to have a reusable rocket, which includes the second stage. And we, as we've talked about this in the past, you know, like even if you have first stage boosters that you land every time, you'd still have to build a new second stage just to keep up with uh, that launch rate. So um, it'll come to a point where that second stage reuse is necessary. Uh, I wonder how far along in development that would be. Elon's known, uh, known at least to me, for saying, oh yeah, so we can just do this, we can just do that. It's super simple. Uh, and then it turns out to be way harder than it seems. Falcon Heavy is a prime example of that. If Falcon Heavy is one of those things that sounds at first, it sounded easy. We'll just take two first stages and use them as strap-on boosters. And like, uh, actually, no, this is crazy hard, um, and re- required a redesign of the center core and a, a ton of additional hardware. Um, it was actually shockingly difficult to go from a single core to um, a triple core vehicle. I I have a big idea though on why I think this would be worth it, and and something I don't think anyone else is really thinking about right now, and it's if. If they can recover the second stage on the Falcon Heavy, they'll certainly need to add a lot of weight to the Falcon Heavy. They'll need to add thrusters to it. They'll need to add landing legs. They'll need to do something. And that'll add significant weight, which will decrease the amount of payload you can bring to orbit. But what if they replace the Falcon 9? What if they phase out the Falcon 9 completely? And then for all of those lower lower weight missions, or, or even like some, probably even some GTO missions, Using the Falcon Heavy, they could recover everything, and the cost would be significantly lower than using a Falcon 9, even with reusable first stage, because the Falcon 9 would still have to have an unreusable second stage. I think that's a really interesting idea, and I think we've heard SpaceX mention that, um, especially with the previous mission, the UTILSAT, that was 5,600 kilograms launching on Falcon 9. That had to be an expendable stage. That was too much for a GTL mission for Falcon 9 to even do a barge landing. Right, but that's about that's about reusing the first stage. My 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 proposal, I guess, is if they probably want to do this because if they can reuse the second stage as well, it will make the Falcon Heavy cheaper 
than a Falcon 9, even with a Falcon 9 having the first stage be reused. Yeah, and it's, it's also worth mentioning uh, Elon in a follow-up tweet talked about that once Falcon Heavy flies with Block 5 boosters for all three of the cores, it'll have a 20% higher payload to geosynchronous transfer orbit. Mm -hmm. um, but that is an expendable mode. So we're talking about a massively overpowered rocket um, for your standard. I can't envision them ever doing that, though. Like, maybe there's some big government satellite that's already designed. That increase in thrust, that sort of overpowered thing, I mean, that covers your extra mass for your second stage, doesn't it? Right. That's probably the bigger point. It's not about actually using that thrust and putting the system in fully expendable mode. It's about using that thrust to add weight to the second stage so that you can recover it and, and significantly lower the cost even further. Yeah, exactly. Where I don't know. I hadn't thought about, you know, going with a full first and second stage reuse. And I think a lot of us thought that SpaceX had ruled out second stage reuse entirely for uh, right. the Falcon family. I think they did for Falcon 9, but right. I think that's why they're bringing it back for Falcon Heavy, though. Yeah, that would be a... a it could replace the Falcon 9. Yeah, that would be a huge additional, like, engineering challenge. Now, uh, people were, you know, messaging uh, Elon on Twitter. Uh, he actually gave some responses uh, saying that the recovery profile for the second stage is going to be very similar to what Dragon does. So that means having a heat shield and having um, presumably thrusters similar to Super Draco's um, do the final mm -hmm. landing. And it's interesting, if you actually look back all the way to one of SpaceX's original uh, renders for reuse, they do have second stage reuse with a heat shield, and the Merlin actually retracts, uh, into the second stage, and they have four smaller thrusters actually do the landing burn. What's the weight on a uh, on a Super Draco? Like for them, I guess someone should do a calculation and figure out what the added mass would be, and figure out if it comes in around the twenty percent range. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that's interesting uh, to think about, and I have a lot of uh, concerns with this. But you know, taking a plain second stage and adding Super Dracos and the fuel tanks for them, plus landing legs, plus some way to protect the engine bell and all this other stuff. Um, I feel like it might, you know, introduce extra points of failure into the second stage, which for a demo mission for Falcon Heavy, where SpaceX actually has several uh, contracts riding on getting Falcon Heavy approved, uh, where if they the first demo mission doesn't go well, those they might lose out on those contracts, and those might get pushed back. Yeah, well, light sail's been w waiting forever. Mm -hmm. Do you guys remember that that big? Um, it's basically like a mylar sun, um, like sun powered uh, satellite that um, the Planetary Society launched in the Falcon Nine. Their next version of that has been scheduled to launch in the Falcon Heavy for like the past three years. It's supposed to go on the first mission of it. I, I think it's an excellent point, TJ, that you bring up uh, that adding more features to the second stage for reuse does add more points of failure, not only to the vehicle itself, but to the whole mission profile. But, you know, th that's kind of assuming that they'll take what they have and strap on more stuff and kind of move stuff around on the inside. I I wouldn't be that surprised if, if like, this all seems super long term and recovering the second stage doesn't seem like it'll matter too much until we get too closer to that end game. So I wonder if um, that'll be enough time to perhaps like overhaul it entirely with reuse in mind. Um, I know for 
dragon, the cargo dragon capsule, um, is now being like they're reusing a lot of parts of it. They're they're refurbishing it and trying to reuse a lot of those components. But they weren't originally designed uh, to be reusable. And Crew Dragon is uh, with the whole idea of landing on land, so you don't have to refurbish everything. Heat shield that can be used multiple times. Same idea. So the next evolution of it was designed with full reuse in mind, where the first one may not have been. Maybe we'll see that again with uh, the second stage. That's a great point. Hopefully we do. I think it's it's going to be worth it. I think that's probably the next step. Once Once first stage reuse is just all over the place, the company that comes up with second stage reuse is the company that's going to have that next breakthrough in space costs. And I think SpaceX is kind of blazing the trail on that end and trying to do that before anybody else does. Yeah, well, it's interesting that, you know, if we had been talking about this in September, we'd been pointing to ITS, right? Where, you know, Elon's talked about taking all the things learned from Falcon 9 about reuse and designing an architecture that's fully designed with that in mind. And they have second stage reuse built into that design there. Uh, with the heat shield being an integral part of the structure every time, um, I don't know. It just like how much how much redesign is required though with ITS if they wanted to use it to launch satellites. If they wanted to have like a satellite deployer inside of an ITS, if they could figure that out, that would be huge. Because think how many satellites they could launch at once. You know how they plan to um, launch a giant fuel tank and refuel in space with right. kind of like the cargo version. Yep. If they can use that for, for in-space cargo, similar to a, the way the space yeah. shuttle took massive payloads into space. Right. Then, then I mean, then they've basically 10x themselves again. No, I, I can definitely see, um, you know, an ITS satellite version happening someplace in the future. But as we talked about before, you know, they're trying to kind of do like that scrappy, just get everything that's the bare minimum necessary to get it done in the time frame. Uh, but again... Mm. You know, redoing second stage reuse on Falcon Heavy is not necessary. Um, so who knows? SpaceX is full of surprises. Then my question is, if they're going to reuse it, why, why don't they just redo it with a Raptor engine? Like, they're already testing Raptor. If they put a Raptor on it, you know, think about it. It's more efficient. You could probably save weight. Bringing this, back, this conversation back around to the, the practical stuff that we can actually see and moving up mm. the, the rocket from the second stage to the fairing, the fairings were also recovered on this last flight, so um, that's partially recovered. Partially recovered. Well, so they were recovered, but one was broken. Correct. <laughs> there are there are under a tarp on the ship. <laughs> on the boat. Yeah, but um, that's one thing that I didn't think about. Uh, like I thought about second stage reuse more than I thought about reusing the fairings, but it turns out to be a significant savings to mm-hmm. take, you know, these carbon fiber uh, huge carbon fiber shells that you could fit a school bus in, turns out they're pretty expensive. And it costs $6 million to um, make that fairing. And, um, uh, and at one point we were like debating, should we try to recover it or not? And it's like, guys, imagine you had $6 million in cash in a pallet flying through the air and it was going to smash into the ocean. Would you try to recover that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> um, so, so, so rather than have it smash into tiny pieces, 
Um, we, um, looks, it looks that that's looking quite promising. So the, yeah. So so I think what we'll have is is kind of like a bouncy castle for it to land on, um, and then um, aim to reuse the the fairing as well. We've actually had a few details come out. Um, they have a reaction control system and like navigation system inside the fairing. So mounted on the inside, they have the ability to orient them in space. Uh, and then, you know, figure out where the fairings are, where they're headed, just like, you know, the first stage. Uh, but instead of having, you know, landing engines to softly land down in the ocean or on land, they have steerable parachutes. And so you have a good amount of lift and drag just from the shape of the, the fairing. But with steerable parachutes, you're actually able to, by controlling the angle of the parachute wing, fly it to a specific spot with relatively good accuracy. Uh, and what's interesting about this technology, it's not some groundbreaking technology like rocket uh, landings were. It's something that the United States military and other militaries have been using for years and years for pair drop payloads. Right. So it's one of those kind of, now that you mentioned it, it's a no-brainer <laughs> type things. Yeah. And it's 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 something they've actually been working on for a long, long time. Um, some amateur photographers were able to take a video of the second stage on a long ago Falcon mission and actually could see reaction control thruster puffs coming from the fairings. And so that was our first hint that they were trying to do this, which was before anything had been leaked or anything announced. Uh, and then right before SDS-10, they announced that they were trying to land them and recover them for this mission. Yeah, before they were probably just trying to, to steer them and test them out, just like they did with Falcon 9 when they initially didn't try and land it. They were just trying to test it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so hopefully we get actual... Uh, onboard video footage. Uh, there is one video already out there about a fairing that uh, landed partially in the ocean um, and then was recovered months and months later and they actually got the camera footage uh, out from the fairing. So hopefully we get some of that uh, coming up in the next few weeks. The one thing we, we didn't talk about is uh, on the autonomous spaceport drone ship, um, someone noticed on r slash SpaceX that there's kind of a uh, some sort of robot that SpaceX has been building that is going on the drone ship. And this is basically the idea behind this is that it will, will autonomously move and then clamp the robot or the, the rocket to the base of the autonomous spaceport drone ship. And this is to um, one, so they don't have to weld the feet to the drone ship like they used to. And, and two, so that they can kind of get that turnaround time to be that much faster. I know Elon said in the, uh, the call at, that at one point for one of the launches, the seas were so rough that the rocket was literally sliding to one end of the drone ship, hitting the little guardrail that's on the side of the drone ship and then sliding all the way back to the other side. And it was only stopped by that tiny guardrail. Yeah. And having it be robotic, um, you know, brings humans out of the equation. They don't have to worry about sending people out there onto the ship. They don't have to wait for people to get there if they're on a boat nearby, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of feeds into this whole autonomous nature of the reuse program. Yeah, okay, so switching gears, let's let's kind of reflect on these events. Rockets finally being reflown or flight proven, if you will. Um, and pretty much on the on the nose, a year ago, we talked about rocket reusability before rockets had landed on land, before rockets had landed on a ship or had been flown again. And let's kind of take a step back and look at 
the industry and rocket science as a whole, knowing what's possible, what's been done, and some new developments for the future. So what has changed since last March? I think we all kind of know, right? This stuff is possible. This stuff is real. It's not just, oh, if they can do it, oh, if they can do it, then this will happen. It's now that they can do it. I think this was this was obvious to us, but who it probably wasn't obvious to is a lot of SpaceX's competitors. And I think they, they maybe had started to get worried and started to look into things. But now it's like for sure they've realized, um, at least this is my thought, but they've realized that they need to move to reuse or else they're going to get left behind. And that's even what Elon said in the, in the press conference is basically, you know, he expects other people to kind of copy this, this idea of reuse because otherwise you are not going to be competitive in this space. You're going to be extinct in, in a few short years. Yeah. And the, the argument of uh, reliability is not sustainable. You know, it, it will last for a while until, you know, everything all the new stuff is reliable too. Uh, right. But I think uh, that reliability argument from some of the quote-unquote old space competitors um, is really a way to buy time for their developments to come to fruition. It's, it's really the one thing they have when you compare the, the two rockets together and a customer is trying to decide between which rocket to go with. You have SpaceX, which has a significantly cheaper rocket and, and there's really, you know, roughly the same mass payload to orbit and everything like that. But then when you look at, you know, ULA or some of the other companies out there, they can only speak to their, their track record because that's really the only thing at that point that they have on SpaceX. And they probably will have that as a benefit for at least the next few years, especially as SpaceX innovates more. They're going to have more failures. And it is valuable, like especially for, uh, you know, projects like James Webb Space Telescope, which is a multi billion dollar project you want reliability um but that will that kind of value will decline over time and uh, i think i think it'll last long enough for for smart reuse to come online and some of the other um reusability developments maybe i I think that also the whole design of satellites too also plays into the the reusability aspect because like tj mentioned earlier satellites will get they'll be designed to have less lengthy lifetimes. You won't have a 40-year-old Hubble, you won't have a 40-year-old James Webb. You'll have the best technology of that year in a scope for the next three years, and then they'll just replace it because it'll be so much cheaper to launch and, and refurbish things and, and, and launch more. Yeah, I, I definitely, like I kind of mentioned this earlier about you know the payloads that take advantage of this new paradigm of, of launches haven't been developed yet. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think the entire space industry has started thinking about this in the new way until probably last week, right? Where there was still a lot of doubts that, you know, you and counter arguments that you could put against SpaceX of, oh, they, they landed one rocket. Oh, they've landed them, but they'll never really launch them. Oh, they've landed them, but it'll cost too much to refurbish them. All of those are getting checked off, and especially with this being such a pivotal moment and proving that entire architecture top to bottom, I think we'll start to see you know places like NASA and especially you know companies like SES or other com uh, commercial satellite companies start to have smaller, cheaper designs. I would add that they are maybe seventy percent there, but they haven't proven it yet to everybody because I think the only way to prove it to everybody is to actually hit them in their wallets. 
I think when they see when SpaceX actually makes money and they, they recoup the cost that it took them to develop reuse, at that point, everyone else will be on board with it. Or, I mean, at that point, they're going to become extinct if they're not. So I don't, I don't know. We, we need more. I guess I'd love to communicate with more people that are in like the older space industries and see what they're thinking now. Maybe that's an interview or something we should, we should set up. But I, I'd be curious. I bet you there's still a, a large group of people that, that still believe that even though SpaceX reused a rocket once, they did mention that they replaced most of the components, not the engines not the actual like structure but but still that that there's some cost to it and if they reuse this one and the next two blow up was it worth it i i think it obviously the three of us think it is but you know there's probably some people out there that still are are skeptical yeah and it's you mentioned you know the timelines and phil talked about you know that history of reuse of uh, history of reliability uh, versus low cost i think that's definitely powerful and uh, SpaceX's competitors, you know, that is their primary uh, argument uh, currently when competing for contracts. But if you look at the timeline, SpaceX has recovered almost all the boosters they've flown in the past year. And they've just relaunched the first one with a few relaunches this year. And they want to do 20 flights. So they are very uh, behind on their backlog. But ideally, they start catching up within the next year or two years. We're talking 2018, 2019. And then you have Block 5 flying, you have a very short backlog, so your payloads can go up in months or a year instead of two, three years. That starts to start winning contracts once you get into that position. And you look at the competitors, even with all of these successful reuse demonstrations over the past year, we're still talking about six years from now having a Vulcan with smart reuse and an Asus reusable upper stage. And we're talking about four plus years until ACES flies for the first time. And so that is several fiscal cycles where SpaceX is bringing in a ton of revenue and a ton of profit and paying back their uh, R&D expenses while companies are still trying to catch up to have the first flight that is the first test flight for their approach. I mean, I think one of the reasons for that, though, is that they are old space. They, they have been around for a long time. They, they're built around this old paradigm. And now SpaceX is from the, the ground up based on this new paradigm. Blue Origin um, really rapidly started uh, launching, landing, reusing their suborbital rockets, and they too are built on reuse. We have to wait for um, ULA, Boeing, Lockheed to take their inertia, their momentum, and just turn it and it's not easy you know and it, it takes Tori Bruno it, when, when he's been leading ULA has been stressing reuse has been kind of leading ULA in, in this new direction toward ACES toward Vulcan um, it takes more than one man with a vision uh, Elon's done it but he's brought on more people with that same vision in terms of large companies like I, I think it's necessary for it to take long. I think something like this will help Tori Bruno because now when he goes to his engineers and pushes reuse, they can't say, oh no, that can't be done. They can't say, oh no, that'd be too hard and it would cost too much. Now there's a proven company out there that is reusing rockets. So it puts the onus on those engineers to kind of, you know, be set free and, and think differently. And that's kind of, I think what Elon's hoping happens and what we're hoping happens to ULA and Lockheed and all of the others as well. I mean, I think this is necessary in every form of 
technology. And Elon's not, he's also hoping for this in terms of the automotive industry with his Teslas. Uh, but it's, it's, I think that culture shift, that sort of mindset shift, the whole paradigm idea is really interesting to see it form from the beginning. I totally agree. And it'll take a long time. I, I really think that I hold this reusable moment that happened last Thursday as the iPhone moment for the space industry. I think over the next 10 years, we are going to see more changes in the space industry than, than possibly any other industry in the world. I think that's an excellent point. Uh, the iPhone idea where after the first iPhone came out, now everything's a touchscreen, you know? Um, that was a paradigm shift. That was a paradigm shift. And it's not even like, if you look at the first iPhone, it's not that great a device compared to what we have today, but com it compared to everything else right. was so fantastic. And we, it started that iterative cycle. So now the newest iPhones mm -hmm. and the newest competitors to iPhones are all fantastic phones. It started the new wave of innovation, basically the new space. So uh, to wrap up this episode, what, what do we have to look forward to in the next six months, five years, and 20 years, TJ? Yeah, so uh, again, like this is a, a big turning point in the entire space industry. Uh, and so, you know, in the, the next six months, we see them do it again and again and again. And we see that four months shrink down to months and weeks and days and eventually down to just, you know, 24 hours. Uh, and then, you know, five years, 20 years, it's definitely going to look a lot like ITS, right? Falcon's going to change or ITS and ITS lookalikes are going to come out uh, and it's going to be that fully reusable, uh, low cost uh, future. And that means we can, we can send lots of stuff, including people to Mars or go back to the moon and do meaningful things on the moon and pretty much do anything. Uh, within the realms of physics. I'm excited for Mars. I think I'm going to try and accumulate $5 million in wealth so that if SpaceX is off by even an order of magnitude in the reduction of cost and they don't hit their $500,000 goal and it's $5 million, I could still go. I too will attempt to acquire $5 million in wealth, but for different reasons. <laughs> Alrighty, everyone just invest in Tesla. There's nowhere you can go with up. Well, that wraps up this episode on Rocket Reusability Revisited. Thanks for listening to SpexCast. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions for this episode. You can suggest new topics for the show on Twitter at RITSpecs and via email at specscast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Our music's provided by Nelson Scott. You can find more of his music at thenelsonscott.com. I'm glad I'm alive right now. I'm glad <laughs> you're alive too, Phil. <laughs> <laughs>